All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the PhD podcast. We're on to episode nine now. So we've had quite a few uh, highlights. And I think it's going to be a, a really fun episode because we're going to really get into some, you know, some sports science principles, specifically on his golf side. Alex has done a lot of uh, good work and was a former uh, NCAA golfer. So we're going to have uh, a nice discussion. Alex, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So Alex, uh, Alex, as I mentioned, he's uh, going into his third year of his PhD at the Human Performance uh, Lab at Old Dominion University. He's done uh, quite a bit of work on the effects of physical preparation in golf. He's published a, a number of research articles recently in terms of strength and conditioning, warm-ups for uh, for golf performance and his current uh, dissertation work touches on, you know, some of the psychological aspects of GI distress and endurance athletes. But Alex and I and Harjeev are all, we're chatting now fair and, you know, some of the work that he's done and his interests are more in line with bridging the gap between research and practice. And Alex, if you could just, you know, introduce yourself a little bit to the audience, give us a little bit of a background on yourself and uh, where you're at right now. Yeah, sure. So yeah, as you mentioned, I'm entering my third year of my PhD, so I'm pretty much uh, done with coursework and, and hopefully we'll be getting the uh, dissertation projects moving. Um, I did my undergrad at University of North Carolina at Greensboro, where I played college golf. And like most college athletes, I thought I was going to be a professional athlete at some point. Um, but I majored in kinesiology, thinking if that didn't work out, uh, maybe I could go to physical therapy school or become an orthopedic PA or something like that. Um, but in the process, actually, one of my assistant coaches was a uh, was the dean of health and human sciences at UNCG, and he retired from academia and wanted to coach. And he's actually a, a pretty well-known uh, motor learning researcher, uh, Dr. Robert nice. Christina. And then he kind of pointed me in the direction of um, – looking at kind of getting the masters. And then I took my exercise physiology class and my professor kind of showed me around the lab uh, when I expressed some interest and showed me like the metabolic cart, which I had no idea what that was at the time. And uh, some of the different ways of getting like body fat percentage. And, and so I stuck around for a master's and did a bunch of research, worked with a bunch of different populations and eventually went on to a, a PhD after teaching for a year. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at now. Very cool. And uh, so college golfer at UNCG. Uh, Alex posts a lot and we'll, we'll, we'll link this in the show notes a lot about golf and golf sports science. And if you guys are uh, golfers or just golfer, you know, for fun and for leisure, or if you're trying to really improve, I would highly suggest following uh, some of the social media stuff that Alex does. He posts a lot of good information about, about golf and sports science, but uh, transitioning a little bit. And, you know, one of the things that we, uh, have our guests share with us uh, and for the listeners as well as an article that's been influential with, uh, you know, some of their past, present and uh, future work. And Alex shared an article uh, from David Bishop, and it was entitled An Applied Research Model uh, for the Sports Sciences. And Alex, if you could just uh, kind of give us a brief overview of, of what this article uh, is saying in terms of sports science and how it can kind of perks uh, or pertains to your uh, research interests. Yeah, so the applied research model that uh, Dr. Bishop proposed was kind of this idea that in the sports sciences, we tend to have this gap between what we know on the science end and what's being done in practice. Um, 
and the other papers have kind of addressed some of the reasons for that, but he really targets from the research perspective that a lot, uh, some sports science research may not be directly applicable to the actual applied setting. So you could come up with this uh, complex intervention, but if coaches aren't going to actually use it or it doesn't make sense in kind of the real world setting, then it's not going to be used and it's not going to impact practice. Or it could be that your research never makes it, the information never makes it to your target audience. So you have this dissemination problem. And so some of that could be addressed with things like coach education, but uh, us as researchers can try to address that by putting a kind of a strategic view of how we view our line of research. So from the very get-go, he pushes for thinking about how ultimately your research is going to lead to changes in practice or be applied to a kind of the practical setting. And so he kind of proposes this research model of just thinking about how you can step-by-step step develop your research line in a way that it's actually usable and uh, valuable to the coaches and athletes that you're targeting. Uh, and so parts of that is things like collaborating with coaches and with uh, athletes or practitioners because uh, they can help develop and generate uh, ideas for research questions or interventions or help you identify what they need uh, from an applied perspective. And that can help uh, lead to more useful information that actually impacts practice. Uh, and the reason I, this paper kind of caught my eye was as a college golfer, we didn't really think about the physical side of golf all that much. It was kind of like no one really thought about nutrition. We didn't really think about hydration. Um, we had workouts, but most people didn't really take it all that seriously. So they didn't really get much out of it. And then when I kind of progressed to the research and coaching side of things, you realize how much good information is out there that the golfers aren't using. So there's this massive gap uh, between kind of the what golfers and golf coaches are doing and know and what we know from the research side. And, and so this paper was valuable in like, what can I do from a research and sports scientist perspective to help bridge that gap? Yeah. yeah that's, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Go, oh, oh yeah. Just real quick. It's, uh, like I said, I was about to mention that Alex is that you've had both sides of the continuum. Now you've been yeah. on the applied, you know, you're a college golfer, high level golfer, and now you're on the research side of things. So it's just interesting getting that perspective because usually you know, we're either on one side or the other. You're either a high-level athlete, you know, we've been a college professional athlete, or we've been, you know, a high-level researcher. So it's rare that you get someone who's done both of those. So it's, it's cool to have you on today and, and talk more about that. Yeah, I really enjoy, like, the whole idea, like, you know, being Ekblad's Creek Ballad and all that stuff as right. well. But um, this paper, uh, I think you mentioned it a little bit, uh, this paper did a really nice job in explaining what's called the applied research model for the sports sciences. Um can you, uh, I know you hit on it a little bit, if you want, if you can describe that a little bit more uh, and then how that compares to um, other sort of models that are out there, I guess. If there even is any yeah, other models, I, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a couple. So I know you had Joe Eisenman on. Yeah. Um, he, yeah. Just, he published a paper in like 2017 that kind of addressed this whole idea of translational science in the sports sciences. And that one's well worth checking out. And he kind of actually talks about uh, this model and the one that Caroline Finch proposed a while back on uh, injury prevention, which I don't know nearly as much about. But mm-hmm. um, yes, the, the idea behind this research model, and he even admits in it that there's going to be arguments about the exact steps. And right. it's proposed as this kind of linear model, this step-by-step descriptive research, and then you have your kind of predictors of performance and then experimental research. 
Uh, but he says the idea is more to kind of reframe the way we think about doing research. And the main point is thinking about you should have the end result in mind, which is ultimately we want to uh, impact practice and we want to help coaches and athletes with their uh, actual practices. Um, so he proposes this kind of step-by-step -step on the information we want to know so that the end result is improved practice and improved performance. Um, so it starts with things like generating good research questions, which seems obvious, but sometimes we're so quick to start doing studies and getting publications out there that we don't right. actually stop to think about what are the actual questions coaches need addressed? Yeah, right. And what we view as important may be different than what a coach uh, views as important. So taking the time to talk with coaches or, or kind of get some skin in the game and, and be around athletes and around the sports setting and figure out what questions are actually going to, they need to know, and then designing your research around that. And then kind of the step-by-step -step of first, we have to identify what's being done and, and how uh, athletes respond and what they believe with kind of the uh, descriptive research. Then once we kind of have that under control, maybe we can progress to identifying the factors that kind of associate or predict the outcomes we care about. So all right, this may be, all right, we know strength and power and mobility are important. Then we can start thinking about how can we improve those outcomes so that it'll translate to better performance. And then eventually we want to get to the point where we're at, uh, identifying interventions and evaluating interventions in their natural setting. The idea being, okay, it works in a research lab, but will it actually work if the coach uses this type of intervention in their setting with kind of the time constraints they have, the mm -hmm. money constraints they have? So will it actually work at the end of the day in the setting that we care about? That's really good. No, that's a really yeah, good absolutely. overview of that, of that paper. And I think uh, you touched on a lot of great points is that, well, the first thing is we need to, if we want to really be applied sports scientists, we need to ask good research questions, questions that, you know, I might be curious about in the lab setting and like, oh, this is a nice little mechanistic relationship. But you know what, if a coach or a clinician or, a, or whoever can't take that onto the field or into a clinical setting, it's, it doesn't have a lot of value. It's not being applied at that point. So it's, we're losing that translation gap that you mentioned earlier. So it's, that was a really good overview, Alex. Really appreciate you, uh, you sharing that with us. I think Harjeev had some uh, another question about like the impact now. Yeah. So, yeah, Alex, thanks for that. So, in terms of research impact on or lack thereof, um, it's always like a hot topic in, in sports science. So, now the idea of impact in this model was defined as like efficacy and implementation. And so, what are ways in sports science that we can improve uh, its impact? Number one. Uh, and uh, what about some studies that are theoretical in nature, but applied directly? Um, so theoretical meaning like, you know, we're not really, uh, I guess, giving you, you know, uh, result oriented uh, sort of literature, but, you know, we're just kind of creating a theory out of what may happen and then kind of set the basis for future research. Um, so, yeah. So what about studies in terms of that? And then lastly, while there is no intervention per se, how can we better implementation of literature that really just expands our understanding in terms of like theory? Um, so I know there's a bunch of questions, but uh, if you want to just take that and tackle that wherever. wherever yeah, I'll, I'll try to unpack yeah. it a little bit. But I, th yeah. I think the first thing is, yes, in an ideal world, applied sports science research should be judged by it's the research plus or times the implementation. But 
one of the issues that Dr. Bishop and Dr. Eisenman have, have brought up in the past and others is that uh, researchers generally in the traditional kind of academic uh, side of things, we, get, we have a different barometer of success than the practitioner in the applied setting is going to have. So we're kind of judged by the number of publications or the number of citations or uh, presenting at conferences, getting papers into big journals. And, and ultimately, the coach, they're judged by performance on the field or on the court or on the golf course or whatever. So the problem is when we keep just producing papers with no goal towards bridging that gap, we could have all of these things on our CV, but if it doesn't actually impact performance, then are we really an applied sports scientist at that point? So I think we need to start, and I don't know if I have all the answers, uh, but um, the more we can kind of consider how we can actually have our information translate to the applied setting. And, and ideally you want to be in communication or even preferably collaborating with coaches uh, in the research process, whether it's helping generate research questions or uh, actually collecting data in a real world environment, like he mentioned, embedding a sports scientist into a team sports setting yeah. um, or, or something like that, where you have kind of both worlds that have uh, some sort of skin in that, that project. And hopefully that'll help bridge the gap, but also we need to find a way to really prioritize disseminating the information we have. Um, because one of the issues is we have solid data in some areas, but if the coaches never hear about it or if they don't understand how it applies, then it's probably not going to get used. Um, so, Alex, if I can just ask a follow-up to you on that. So what have you done specifically on the golf side of things in terms of golf sports science to kind of alleviate some of those issues? Yeah. So a big thing is my social media is almost entirely geared towards trying to get information to really, it seems like the, the people that follow me tend to be golf coaches mm -hmm. and golf strength and conditioning coaches and, I've got a group of strength and conditioning coaches I talk to all the time about um, it's funny when you sit down with them for an hour and just talk research, talk working with golfers, how many good ideas for research projects just kind of pop up. Um, yeah. and, and so I, I try to communicate with uh, golfers as much as possible. And actually, I don't know if I mentioned in the bio, but uh, I'm actually a volunteer golf coach at my alma yeah. mater right now. Um, so a lot of what I'm doing there is obviously I'm remote since I'm at Old Dominion, right. but um, a lot of it is when you have a golfer kind of question what they're doing in the weight room, me having kind of both perspectives, I'm able to better communicate with that golfer. This is why we're doing, you know, squats exactly. in the weight room, yeah. even though I'm swinging this light golf club on the yeah. course. Uh, so trying to kind of ease that communication between two very different worlds, um, is I'm trying to do anything I can to kind of bridge the gap because golf in particular has not accepted some of the sports sciences as well as other sports. And that's essentially, you know, your the working model of sports science is essentially, you know, taking these data that we've generated and the knowledge that we have and then applying it into a setting that hasn't done it before and trying to see if this is improving performance, reducing injury risk. Like you said, golf is a sport that's been it's similar to baseball, honestly, in that, you know, we thought, you know, with pitchers, you know, we should, you know, they shouldn't be lifting weights. They shouldn't be doing this and that. But you see now people, you know, both on the baseball and the golf side of things saying, you know, with Bryson inside, I know he's a, he's a hot topic in the golf community right now, but, you know, it gets to the point where we have some good data now that we've collected in the lab 
and, you know, whether it's a strength and conditioning, you know, sort of thing. And that if we can now get that into, you know, a weight room for a golfer, because, you know, golfers then used to lift weights until, you know, Tiger started a little bit with the fitness revolution, but now we're starting to see more golfers with, you know, starting to be more fit and, you know, work on the strength and conditioning thing. So, you know, it's a good, you know, just reminder to everybody that we can collect all this data we have and we can have all these publications but if the golf team, you know, in the building next door isn't actually using the data that we've collected, you know, it doesn't really, it doesn't really help. It doesn't really influence coaching practice. It doesn't really influence athletes. And so Alex, you know, being, you know, like I mentioned, he's heavily involved in social media, but he's working remotely for his alma mater. That's, you know, that's, a, that's sports science in the sense is that he's doing what he can because he's, he's been in the trenches. He's had skin in the game, as he's mentioned, and now he's applying the knowledge that he's generated from the research side to influence practice. And so I commend you on that, Alex, because it's a lot of work. It's a lot more work than just sitting at your desk and, you know, publishing papers. And that's all, that's great. And all that information needs to get out there, but now taking the research that you've generated and now putting it into practice takes more, more effort. And, you know, at the end of the day, and takes individuals like yourself who are passionate about it. So we commend you on that because that's the interest that Harjeev and I have. I have a quick follow-up to that. Um, and this is to, you know, Jason or Alex, um, what do you, where do you think the gap is? Do you think the gap is um, us as sports scientists or, or PhD students, like reaching out to these teams and coaches, or is it the other way around where coaches either know or may not know that they have access to all this and them taking the initiative to reach out to us um, for us to do. Uh, Honestly, uh, I think it's on our end, honestly, because like I said, Alex is, you know, collegiate golfer works with college athletes. I was with the Rays for a little bit. If the coaches don't even know that that information's there, that we've done, I mean, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And I think it's on our end, honestly, to initiate because in my experience, and I've gone through the gamut of adolescence through college, through professional, it really is the way that you approach the coaches and the athletes. If you come in, you know, day one and you're a PhD trained biomechanist or exercise physiologist or motor learning expert, and you say, you know, we're going to do this, this, and this, you know, we're going to do, you know, we're going to apply this, this, and this, and you don't really massage that relationship from day one, you're going to, they're going to tell you, no, they're going to tell you, we don't yeah. want this. It's really about us coming in as, you know, scientists and researchers with, you know, high level degrees and three or four degrees or whatever and saying, you know, you know, coach, let's have a conversation for an hour. You know, these are some things that I've noticed and being in the trenches and, you know, Alex has been a collegiate golfer. So he's been in the trenches. When I was with the Rays, I was on the field every single day from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. in 95 degree Florida weather because I needed the coaches to know that I was invested, you know, that I cared about what they were doing. And you know, I could sit down and have that conversation and say, coach, these are the things that I've seen in, in watching your athletes and, you know, watching you guys train. Here's are some things that I think might be able to help. And as soon as you start opening up those conversations, that's when you can really go in there. I think Alex, I would love to hear your, your viewpoint on this as well, because you've been on both sides. Yeah, I'd say I agree. I think there's a lot we could do better as kind of the sports scientists to help bridge that gap. And a big part of it is you have to know how to communicate with the athletes. And um, there's definitely a role, like kind of going back to, there's definitely a role for more of the bench science, the kind of underlying physiology and biomechanics that doesn't necessarily have direct application because it does set the stage for the more applied research. 
but yeah, when you have someone like me where my interest is in ultimately doing applied research that gets kind of translated to the field, I have to take onus on how best to talk to coaches about it, how to get them to buy into what you're saying. And I think one challenge is researchers are kind of inherently specialists where we spend all of our time focused on very specific things and the coach has to be responsible for the whole picture. So you can come in and say, we need to devote 10 hours a week to training. But with, for a golfer, it's like really what they need is to maximize the impact on the course, which training is only a small part of that. So I think you need to be able to demonstrate, yeah, you have this information in this specialized area, but you also have given thought into how it applies to the whole picture, which is a big part of it. Yeah. You really need to wear a lot of hats. I mean, when I was, when I was down in Florida, I realized I'm not a biomechanist anymore. You know, I need to be a physiologist. I need to be a, you know, you know, I need to be a mental skills coach because you know what, they don't have the resources to be able to have an in-house biomechanist and in-house exercise physiologist, you know, so on and so forth. Like it's, it's not easy. I mean, you have to have this really, 30,000 foot view of how to develop an athlete, you know, from the, from the ground up. And so I think being in the trenches though, I mean, that's the thing we can sit here at our desk all day long and we can write papers and stuff, but until you get into major league baseball, until you get into college golf, until you get into professional volleyball, you just don't know the environment. You can't ask a great research question or collect data in house if you've never been in the environment before. That doesn't have to be in with a team setting. That can be at a you know a sports performance center like a Spartan Performance or like wherever across the country or across the world. So I think it's important if you know aspiring sports scientists are listening right now that you know your best bet at the moment. You know obviously COVID has put a halt on things, but as soon as we're able to resume you know some normal activities, <laughs> you really need to step out of the out of the lab for a bit and get into the environment because your questions. And your applied sports science will be that much stronger. Uh, Alex, just transitioning a little bit and actually, you know, kind of related to some of the points that we've talked about, you know, all of us are, uh, you know, we've done sports science work in the past where, you know, have plans to continue sports science initiatives. But for someone who's listening right now, whether that be like an undergraduate student, a master's student, even a PhD student who is an aspiring sports scientist, what would you recommend that they can do right now during their, their schooling? that can kind of prepare them, you know, to, to continue on to these initiatives. Yeah. I think it's a lot of what we've kind of talked about is if when at all possible, get in the actual sport environment. If, if you want to eventually work in the strength and conditioning side, try to find ways to be exposed to that environment. And at the very least try to communicate and, and collaborate with uh, the actual applied pr- uh, practitioners as much as possible because you won't really learn what the environment is like until you're there, but also have the chance to talk with those who have been there, done it, that are in the trenches day in and day out. And so, yeah, you have to recognize that the information alone is not enough. It's ultimately they want to know how it can be applied and how it can produce results. And so I would say as much as you can have conversations with people that are experienced with working with athletes and then be exposed to the environment yourself, the better off you're going to be because um, then it, you'll start to be able to meld uh, the be- best of both worlds in terms of the actual scientific knowledge, but also with how to apply it to the real world. 
That's great, Alex. Yeah, those are, those are great points. And, you know, Alex has done a lot of good applied work and he's recently published uh, a number of papers, a number of review papers in terms of golf performance. Alex, if you wouldn't mind just uh, talking about that a little bit, because I know we've, we have some golfers, uh, Nathan Edwards and I went to Ball State together. I know you guys have interacted quite a bit. The three yeah. of us have interacted a little bit, but for the golfers specifically that are listening, if you could just uh, talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done recently in terms of, in terms of golf performance. Yeah, I, I laugh. When it comes to golf, it's from people that like aren't in the golf world, and baseball is kind of similar, mm-hmm. similar trajectory to golf. There's a lot yep. of similarities. But if you come from like a, a football or a track and field perspective, a lot of like the big thing is like the concept of marginal gains, where it's like what little things can we do to get these little 1% benefits? What I joke about in golf is it's not about marginal gains. It's like, let's do the bare minimum and start there. Because like my first paper was a systematic review on uh, like physical warmups, dynamic warmups, and golf performance measures. And that seems like common sense in most sports. It's embedded into the culture of like soccer. And uh, I mean, the dynamic warmup is just, it's part of what you do before you practice and, and compete. But in golf, I was shocked at how little it's even now still occurs at like the college and professional level. It's usually you show up, you maybe do a few quick stretches and then you start swinging away on the range. And uh, so I, I did a review paper, just basically let's look at the research behind it. And it's pretty straightforward. If, as you'd expect, if you do a dynamic warm up, your performance tends to be better. Static stretching tends to either have less of an effect or it may even have a negative effect, which in other areas of sports science has been well known for a long time, but it just, that was immediately, I knew there was a gap there and I wanted to look at the research. Uh, kind of the same thing. We, we've done a couple of descriptive studies, uh, more observational. So one was a survey-based study on how golfers view and practice when it comes to nutrition and hydration. Because for a long time, golfers basically ignored the concept of nutrition. It was grab what was, was ever at the clubhouse as you're making the turn and, and kind of scarf it down and then go from there. Um, and so we did a survey-based study that's under review now, but Um, we found that like even competitive golfers, only about a third of them even really like come up with a strategy of what they're going to eat and drink at the course during competition. So a lot of that, it's like, we need to understand what we're up against before we develop effective strategies. Um, and then the most recent one that, that just got published was a review on strength and conditioning for golf, uh, because now there is growing interest in, in training for golf and, so I had like 25 papers I found uh, in pretty much across the board. They improve performance measures like swing speed and, and distance. And in a lot of them, there's a lot of different ways to improve. And a lot of it is probably because golfers tend to be pretty untrained compared to other sports. Uh, they have a very low strength and power level going in. So doing almost anything seems to pr- improve performance within a few months. That's good. That's good stuff. It's like, it's like you mentioned, it's similar to like the baseball thing. It's like, if you look at sports like football and track, like you mentioned basketball and stuff like that, you, it makes sense. Oh yeah. You're more powerful. Yeah. You're going to swing the club faster. You're going to hit the ball farther. You're going to throw the ball faster, but do it's like you mentioned doing the, just the bare minimum. Okay. Let's just get you into a weight room two to three times a week. And you know what? Your, your ball could travel 15 yards further in a couple months. It's just like, things that seem like low hanging fruit to a lot of us, but until, like you said, Alex has been in the culture before he's been in the trenches. He's seen like 
for the majority of it, golfers don't really lift. They don't really, you know, they don't resistance train, but Alex has done some work now to say, okay, this is what we can do at the bare minimum and your performance can go up exponentially. Would that be an accurate statement, Alex, that if you just do, you know, two to three times a week of weight training and, you know, we monitor, you know, some of our hydration and uh, nutrition on the course that you think golf performance can go up at a decent rate. Is that, is that a correct assumption? One of the big things that's happened recently is better statistical methods for actual golf performance. So uh, Mark Brody is a, I think he's a business professor, Um, but he developed this new statistic for golf called the strokes gained. And so before it used to be like, what, what number did you shoot? How many greens did you hit? Mm -hmm. And and so those stats give you a very superficial idea of what's going on, but he developed this more complex way of looking at it where it actually shows you compared to your competition, how many strokes did you gain in each part of your golf game? And one of the big things that came out of it is uh, we're starting to appreciate the idea of hitting it further, how important it is. And that getting stronger and more powerful helps you hit it further. So um, he basically, he has a stat in his book that's at the professional level. If you gain 20 yards of distance, it's about 0.75 shots per round, which doesn't sound like a lot, but at that high level where Mm -hmm. a stroke is the difference between the number one guy on tour and the number 20 guy on tour. And then you think about 0.75 strokes per round over the course of a 30 tournament season just from gaining 20 yards of distance. I mean, that makes a big difference. And then you're starting, finally, we're starting to get past, there's this kind of saying in golf, it's, you know, drive for show, putt for dough, where it was always putting, driving was just yep. to show off. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So now we're that. finally starting to realize, like, That's the statistics are pretty clear that hitting it further is important and being more fit and stronger can help you hit it further. Yep. So maybe there's something to this. And um, yeah, so the, I mean, the research is, is very clear. I, I think for most golfers that I've come across, very few of them wouldn't benefit from just doing some sort of strength training two to three times a week. Uh, cause most of them are not very familiar with the weight room. And if right. they do, it's been a lot of like stretching or high rep, uh, kind of endurance work mm-hmm. or, um, a lot of like what they like core work and of core right. is kind of a buzzword sometimes, but a lot of things like seated Russian twists, because mm-hmm. the idea is I rotate during the golf swing. So maybe if I rotate on the floor with a med ball, <laughs> that will translate. <laughs> what we're finding is a lot of these programs that are effective in the research and in my experience as well. It's like, let's just get you stronger generally. Yep. And that's generally going to translate pretty well to the golf swing. Yeah, no, that's good. That's really good stuff. It's, it's, it's interesting. Cause like, I mentioned Bryson uh, quite a few times. He's like a good case study right now, right? It kind of from, from your perspective, you know, he's, he put on all this mass, you know, he's driving the ball insane. I've seen a couple 400 plus yard drives with the roll there. I've been, you see on like social media and stuff, people, you see some people that are really in favor, like our side of things are like, oh, this is great. You know, we've known this for a while. You know, you put some mass on, you put more, uh, you put more distance into your driver. Yeah, you're only 50 yards away from the green now. And so, but then you see other people on, social media are like, Oh, he's ruining the game of golf and whatever. So it's just an interesting kind of, kind of paradigm shift right now that we're seeing. And he's, I mean, he's tearing off the courses right now over the last six months. He's always, I don't know. It's just, I, I know that's a hot topic right now in golf and stuff. So it's uh it's <laughs> interesting, but uh, thanks for sharing that information with us, Alex. We appreciate it. I want to touch yeah, just, just a little bit in terms of, we talked about this off air uh, with Alex, but some of the research, uh, 
some of the current work that you're doing right now and some of your future work in terms of uh, your PhD dissertation. We just want to touch a little bit on that as you as you head into your uh, final year of your PhD, like Harjeev and I were really, <laughs> really seeing the finish line coming here, but if you wouldn't mind sharing that. Yeah, sure. So I've um, got a few papers being reviewed, so hopefully those, those all kind of uh, get published before too long, but uh, a couple related to golf. Like I had... I did a meta-analysis on all the physical correlates of golf performance measure, club head speed in particular, because one of the most common questions I get from strength and conditioning coaches is what characteristics should golfers be focusing on? So uh, I, I had that submitted, so hopefully uh, that will get published before too long. But uh, my dissertation work will be completely different in that um, our lab does a lot of work with gastro, uh, gastrointestinal distress in endurance runners. Uh, in particular, my uh, mentor, Dr. Patrick Wilson, he does a lot with the psychological side of things with how stress and anxiety influence uh, gut symptoms during running. And so uh, I'll be doing a couple of studies. One is a survey-based study because with COVID-19, we need to do as much remote research as we can since the labs are still not entirely open, at least in Virginia. Um, yeah, so uh, one of my studies will kind of look at how psychological factors like stress and anxiety influence the uh, foods and like things like caffeine that endurance athletes uh, consume before they run. But the idea maybe more anxious runners know that they're at a higher risk of having gut issues. So they kind of ease back on things like fiber and caffeine and uh, fats or proteins before they run. And then the second study I'm going to do is uh, intervention study where, where we're going to recruit people that uh, report to have high levels of uh, anxiety or runners in particular and see if uh, deep breathing five minutes a day for a few weeks is enough to reduce their anxiety, but also see if it uh, kind of attenuates some of their symptoms as well. So that would be a, a very easy practical intervention that like an anxious runner uh, could put into practice five minutes of deep breathing know before you run or and it, it could have a lot of beneficial effects without much of a downside um so even if it just helps anxiety alone but also if it helps the gut symptoms that could have a big impact alex i got a question uh, i got a question real quick for you uh following up with your dissertation stuff do you think that has some sort of transferability to the golf course as well with golfers was, and, and anxiety and things I was like that just gonna ask that. yeah yeah i think <laughs> Archie and i were on the both both on the same page <laughs> I really want to do some of those studies because I, I was a golfer that, that really struggled with competition anxiety and, and golf is kind of notorious for you hear about the yips all the time where mm -hmm. you get in your head and even a three foot putt looks terrifying. Um, and yeah, it's one, it's one I definitely want to eventually look at and, and play around with myself now that I know there's a pretty good physiological basis for how deep breathing could help. Um, especially individuals that struggle with, with stress and anxiety. So yeah, maybe down the line, I would love to, to do one of those studies with golfers. Yeah. Well. It's really, it's really awesome that you were, you're still, you're still within the applied sort of perspective yeah, just, yeah, despite, yeah. you know, you know, COVID for example, um, which is really, it's, it's really awesome to see. So kudos I, to you. I'd be curious, Alex, cause I, I've, I've been dealing with the yips off the tee for like 10 years and I think I finally, I think, I think I figured it out. Ask me in about six months if I figured it out off the tee, but I swear I had the yips off the, off the tee for like a decade. It even took like three years off of golf. Cause I was like, I'm sick of it right now. I can't do it. <laughs> I can relate. I, I had the chipping yips uh, my last season of college golf and 
that makes it pretty tough to compete at the highest level when you're uh can't get the ball on the green from just just off the green so yeah so it's definitely a struggle and I I tell people all the time most of my advice to golfers is stuff I wish I had known when I was competing which which makes you which makes you um an excellent resource because again yeah you're on on both sides of things so uh anyway so uh, Alex just one last question we had was you know to our listeners what what's one practical takeaway that any practitioner can take from your uh, expertise that might, that could be specifically to the golf yeah. side of things if you want to touch on that, but just something that, you know, you've done a lot of research, a lot of good research. You've been in that setting. What's someone that if there's a golf coach listening or even another researcher listening, what's someone that they can take, what's a practical thing that they can take away from your experiences so far? I'd say a big part of it is you can have pretty meaningful benefits from physical preparation for golf, whether it's warm-ups, nutrition. A lot of it is just doing the little things well. It doesn't need to be this massive overhaul to what you're doing. It doesn't need to be a massive addition to your schedule. Something as little as taking five minutes and doing a dynamic warm-up. Um, things like planning ahead what you're going to eat and drink on the course, or at least having a plan in case uh, the golf course doesn't have many options for eating uh, during a tournament or during competition and things like make sure you get sleep before you play. I think a lot of golfers don't really think about the little things uh, and the research is pretty clear. I mean, it's going to, there's not many downsides to doing those little things and there's potential upsides for sure. And I think a big one with, with kind of the research practice gap in general is there's kind of this, like everything else, there's these two very opposing camps sometimes, especially in social media where it's, you have to take everything from research is like gospel or the other side where it's like research is kind of useless because it doesn't apply. And I would recommend if you're in one of those camps, trying to open your eyes to how we can kind of come together and kind of take the best of, of both worlds. And maybe there's a middle ground there that we kind of take the value of a rigorous uh, kind of research design, but also kind of the practical experience of a coach and, and bring those together. That's probably going to do more, more good uh, than kind of two opposing camps. Those are all great points. And I think, you know, Harjeev and I have similar interests to you, Alex, in terms of the sports science model and being researchers ourselves. And I think our listeners can agree on all the things that Alex just touched on, you know, whether it's in the golf course, whether it's on the golf course and, you know, doing those little things. I think Nick Saban mentions it all the time too. He's like notorious for those little things. Mm. Like, cause it were, I mean, you know, if you focus on the details and you, you know, the big picture comes after that, but Thanks again, Alex. We really do, you know, appreciate your time today. And yeah, it was a good, it was a really good episode because this is really where Harjeev and I's interests really are. You know, we've done a lot of research things, but we really are, you know, we're all in this same setting. We're aspiring, you know, sports scientists have done some sports science work in the past, but uh, this was a great conversation. We, you know, appreciate your time, Alex. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. It's fun. So Alex, where can, uh, if people are interested, I know, you know, you've done a lot on, on the social media side of things with golf, but uh, for our first time listeners who might be golfers, might be researchers, apply, or, uh, applied sports scientists, what are, what are some ways that they can reach you with, you know, Twitter and other, other mediums that you have? Yeah, so I'm pretty active on Twitter and Instagram. I've kind of started to play around with a little bit. Okay. Um, for, for Twitter, it's at Alex M. Alert, so my last name. Um, and then on Instagram, it's golf underscore physiologist. Okay. Um, nice. <laughs> I, I kind of likes the, you don't hear too many people talk about them 
themselves as a physiologist that applies their work to golf. So, yeah. um, so, so I share a lot of the kind of research and, and more visual stuff on, on that, uh, on Instagram as well. And then research side of things, I have a, a research gate profile and all that as well. Perfect. Yeah, and we'll, we'll make sure we link that. Yeah. We'll link all that in there. Yeah. Cool. Alex, thanks again for taking the time. Stay safe. Uh, I'll definitely be following up on you. Cause like I said, I've just gotten back into golf and I'm, you know, I, I'm raring to go off the tee now. I'm really excited to get some. We'll be following up with you. Thanks again, Alex. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Appreciate it.